Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR. And I'm Susie Dennison, Senior Fellow at ECFR. Together we're moderating this year's summer series of podcasts. In previous years, we've done the Clash of Orders, the Age of Unpeace and the End of the World series. And this year, we're looking at the special relationship between the UK and the EU, what we're calling the Great Reset. Today, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the opportunities and challenges when it comes to Europe-UK cooperation on defence. And unusually, we have an all-star cast to help us make sense of these issues. Our guests today are Nick Whitney, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR and also has a long track history working on these sorts of issues, both on the EU side, where he was the first chief executive of the European Defence Agency and was tasked by then High Representative Javier Solano with developing the concept and the blueprint for the agency when it was established in 2004. Um, But before that, spent many, many years in the British Ministry of Defence working on planning and finance and defence exports, nuclear policy, defence industrial policy, and trying to make sense of how uh, Britain adapted to a changing world and how it plugged into the European emerging European defence community. And also back to the podcast is Camille Grand. Uh, Camille is a distinguished policy fellow at ECFR, but is also a former assistant secretary general for NATO, uh, for, sorry, for defense investment at NATO, where he piloted the alliance's work in capability delivery, missile defense, armaments and technology cooperation, but had a long career before that working in different think tanks and in the, the French Ministry of Defense as well. So, Nick, Camille, thank you very much for joining. Why don't we start with just getting a sense from the two of you about what possibilities there might be for the UK and the EU to change their defence cooperation. When we were on the way out, these were issues which were quite complicated and problematic. We had a a kind of famous test case for how European-UK defence cooperation could become a lose-lose situation with the Galileo um, experience. But the war in Ukraine, I think, has, has changed the, the context quite radically. So these are not academic debates anymore. We are at war um, in Europe at the moment. And obviously, there, there are enormous kind of pressures on budgets, on capabilities as a result of the war and of the kind of wider macro economic frameworks that we're all facing. To what extent do the two of you think that that we could see a new situation for um, thinking about the defence side? Maybe, Nick, you could go first and talk a bit about how things look from a, a UK perspective. And we've had an integrated review. We've had various kind of attempts to think about what needs to happen to UK defence in this kind of new world with the war in Ukraine and possibilities of Trump winning elections again in the future? Sure. I mean, the short answer is that under this government, the chances of uh, defence rapprochement between Britain and the and the EU are zilch. You mentioned the integrated review, which was a foreign policy document produced in March, which should have been followed up in June by a defence command paper, which was delayed because uh, various people, including the defence secretary and the head of the army, were determined that there should be more money specifically for the army, which is grotesquely under-equipped at the moment, and they didn't get it. So both those two characters are now uh, heading for an early bath. And 
the um, Defence Command paper was slipped out a couple of days ago to minimum tension because there being no more money, it's actually almost entirely devoid of content. It does uh, list all the partnerships that Britain will pursue around the world because we are still in the eyes of defence very much global Britain. And it name checks a, a bunch of individual EU member states, Germany, France, in particular, Italy, some of the Nordics, Poland, a lot of emphasis. As for the EU, it just says, we'll, we'll be looking for opportunities to cooperate more with the EU, provided, of course, they don't do anything to undermine NATO, which is a wonderful old trope to which Britain has been addicted for at least the last 20 years. So no change there. A new government, I mean, a different government, a Labour government under Keir Starmer would, I'm sure, be well, they've said, be very interested in trying to find ways to restore links with the EU. So from a British perspective, what do you think they might want to try and do? What would a kind of ambitious framework be from a UK perspective under a different government? Well, the focus, I think, for both parties would be on defence, industry and technology. I think we can rule out operations because, you know, the sort of expeditionary operations and interventions and joint forces that have been were so uh, fashionable in the first couple of decades of this year have now fallen completely into desuetude. The EU is basically no longer an operational entity. Operations and deployments and the use of military forces all, I think, probably rightly now done through NATO. So we're talking about defence, industrial and technological cooperation, which in my view, both parties actually need uh, I think the EU stands to benefit from finding a way to get Britain involved in that sort of activity. And I think Britain certainly needs to restore its links with the continent. I have actually a specific cunning wheeze as to how that might be achieved, despite the fact that we have left the single market and that European defence collaboration over the last five or 10 years has been set up very specifically on the basis of excluding third parties which is aimed primarily at excluding the US, making sure the US can't come in. But as sort of collateral damage in a way, Britain is not allowed under the current rules to uh, join in the Brussels-based initiatives such as PESCO and access to the Commission Fund. For those who um, have followed it less closely, it's Permanent Structured Corporation, an initiative for which Nick is one of the intellectual um, godfathers in a ECFR pamphlet. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Well, what I want to say, um, there is no doubt that British defence is in a pretty sad state at the moment. I mean, the report that did acquire a lot of salience in the last week had been a, a report produced by the Defence Committee of House of Parliament, which had reviewed British defence procurement activities over recent years and concluded it was wonderful, really. I have myself been sometimes critical of Britain's procurement efforts, but I've never been bold enough to say... This is a story, a woeful story of bureaucratic procrastination, military indecision, financial mismanagement and general ineptitude. So we obviously want to import that back into Europe. But seriously, we do have, particularly on the science and technology side, and we've got some big defence companies and collaboration, as we all know, through the Horizon programme is absolutely essential to maintaining the continent's place in an increasingly globalised battle for maintaining a, a technological and industrial edge in such areas as the defence industry. Okay. So, Kemi, if we spin the, the telescope round and look at it from the EU side, what does the EU, with kind of thinking in expansive terms, what do you think 
EU member states and kind of policymakers across the countries that care about defence would want from the UK if uh, if we could have a, a reset? I guess on, from the EU perspective, the Brexit was a very much a lose-lose proposition. The EU was losing one of its two agile military powers, uh, the largest defence budget in Europe, uh, ended up in, in also losing a, a significant chunk of the European defence and technological industrial base, uh, the EDTIB. And the UK ended up on being in a, in terms of relationship with the EU currently worse off than Norway that you could expect, but also now Ukraine, Serbia, the United States have uh, administrative arrangements with uh, the European Defense Agency and can develop some projects uh, on that basis, which doesn't exist for the UK. And Turkey is the largest contributor to an EU operation in Bosnia. So we, we have a sort of situation where others, uh, which are non-EU member states, have closer ties with the EU than the, the UK currently. So that's the one element. The second element, I guess, uh, looking at that is that what Ukraine demonstrated is that NATO is not the only game in town when it comes to these issues. And that the EU was very much at the forefront of trying to address some of the procurement uh, challenges, trying to meet the demand for ammunition as EU using multiple tools in its toolbox, uh, from the commission money to sort of uh, sponsor defense industry uh, to uh, the European peace facility or to uh, joint procurement under the European Defense Agency. So we have an EU that is more active today, which makes it all the more damaging to not be connected to this ecosystem. So looking at the future from an EU perspective, I guess there are all European member states' perspective. I, I think, first of all, there, there is really a case to be better plugged in into the institution. The institution memory is vanishing. There is a, a, a need to have a closer ties with those institutions and to understand what's going on there. And therefore, you know, looking at forms of arrangements that will better connect London to the EU institutions uh, dealing with defense is really critical. Again, you go back to a number of Brexit conversations, but I think there are relatively straightforward decisions that can be made, for instance, on uh, in terms of relationship with the European Defense Agency. Second, there is the bilateral route, which has been the route of choice uh, for the Conservative governments, which works, but to a point. Of course, the ties with Paris are, are still very strong with a number of industrial cooperation and joint projects. Ties with Berlin are, exist, but I think could be, are not as developed. And Britain has a very, very good uh, network in the northern and eastern part of Europe, building on its uh, role on, in the Ukraine, Ukraine war environment, which creates opportunities for cooperation with a number of countries in that part of Europe, uh, plus the uh, British-Italian ties through companies like Leonardo. So, so there, there's a, a big web of ties in the industry domain and even in the operational domain with, with the Joint Expeditionary Force. The last thing I would flag as something that could be a, where we need to draw all the lessons is that one of the things that the support to Ukraine really put in a crude light is how integrated are our industries. In a way, it is sort of absurd to uh, think about delivering ammunition to Ukraine when the, the key company, for, let's say, to deliver anti-tank system, system like the Enlow, involves a French company operating in the UK, Thales UK, jointly with a Swedish company, Bofors. And if you want to work on the bottlenecks for production on joint procurement, having the UK outside the club makes it all the more complicated. And I think there, there are lots of opportunities to do more under a joint UK-EU umbrella 
uh, next to whatever happens under a NATO umbrella. So on that point, um, the instinct from the UK side will obviously be to build out of the bilateral cooperation and cooperation within the framework of uh, of NATO that we've seen in much more with, with support to Ukraine and so on, because that is politically easier in the UK context. As you've highlighted, there are a lot of projects that are underway at bilateral level that are quite important to the big EU member states. Do you sense that there is a shift now in terms of a desire to think about this as an EU-UK conversation again, despite the sort of the history and the baggage around that? And and how practically would either of you see that working? I was just reading um, before this, looking back to a report that Nick and Mark and I worked on back in 2018 on keeping Europe safe after Brexit, where we were talking very idealistically about the idea of the EU indicating where it would be helpful for the UK to attend meetings and discussions and opt in. It doesn't feel like we're quite yet back in an environment where that is even conceivable. But how would you see this sort of building up operationally? I think maybe... Camille has a bit more confidence in the in the EU institutions in this matter than I do. It is helpful that the European Commission has now st- started tapping the common budget of the EU um, to provide, I think, about a billion pounds a year of a uh, billion euros a year of um, incentives for member states to come together and collaborate and produce joint programs and so on. But that's really rather small beer in comparison with the totality of defence spending across Europe, which remains fundamentally under the control of national governments. And although the European Defence Agency, which is actually a keen proponent of, does its best to try to encourage the nation states to come together and do what they've been promising for two decades of pooling their efforts and resources and collaborating more closely and running joint projects. And thus, in that way, encouraging industries to come together as well to create a defence technological base in Europe that operates on a truly continental scale. Although the EDA can can and does work very hard on that, the fact is that we've never been under any illusion that the financial decision-making power lies in the member states. And there are all sorts of reasons why they prefer to continue on the whole to operate in national boxes. So I think that's the the real problem that has to be overcome. And in my view, that can only be done by getting a critical mass of the member states to look at the current situation and think, well, we'd better try to readdress this, because if we don't, we will find that we are increasingly sliding down the international scale of defense producers and armaments exporters. Ukraine has, in my view, been perversely unhelpful in this regard, because although defence budgets across Europe have shot up, most of that money is hemorrhaging out of Europe into the pockets of big US prime contractors. And further afield, South Korean uh, arms producers are being tapped for tanks and missile systems. and, And the Israelis are having a field day as well, with lots of missile projects being sold into Europe particularly into uh, Central and Eastern Europe, who have never been terribly enthusiastic about the idea of an integrated defence technological and industrial base in Europe, because they saw that with some justice as being primarily the concern of the uh, traditional Western primes in Germany and France and Spain and the UK and back in the day. So my own sense is that the way for Britain to try to reapproach the the whole business of European defence is by working with a relatively small group of those member states who have for a while now been recognizing, at least intellectually, 
that the pooling of efforts and resources between them is essential if they're ultimately their industries and technological bases are to have a future. And happily, there is a device by which that could be done, which I should be delighted to explain in a moment, if you would like me to. Please explain your device. All right. Well, it's, um, it's a thing called the Letter of Intent, a magically obscure title for a treaty signed in the year 2000 between the major Western European defence, industrial and technological countries. So it was the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Italy and Sweden. And that has fallen into dissuetude, but it still exists. Treaties like old soldiers never die. They just sort of fade away, but it's still there on the statute book and could perfectly well be revived as a legitimate pioneer grouping the sort of thing that PESCO was actually intended to be before it suddenly became, um, in its implementation, uh, this rather unsatisfactory arrangement, to be honest, whereby all member states belong to PESCO. So my own view is that that could be a very useful, ready-made vehicle for re-importing British involvement into discussions with some of the main Western European defence nations to consider, I suppose, first of all, whether everybody's happy with how things are going, and if they're not, to revisit the old arguments and old ideas about what needs to be done about it and how it can be advanced. So, Kemi, how do you think the French would uh, respond if Keir Starmer goes across the uh, channel waving the letter of intent around, suggesting that this might be a vehicle for a new relationship on defence issues? It, it is a good vehicle and it has indeed uh, fallen a, a bit uh, more as a bureaucratic tool to facilitate uh, border crossing of defence technology. Uh, but indeed, it has a good potential for serving as a sound base to develop cooperation and facilitate cooperation, because the whole purpose of this LOI was to facilitate the exchange of technology, the, the flow of components from one country to another, having uh, shared uh, export policies, uh, making sure that flow of technology and equipment would be as easy as possible between the six major defense industrial countries in Europe. So it, it is a, a good thing, I would say. I th it would need to be combined, given this new EU role, with some work on where to connect. Because I think one of the things that the EU is doing through PESCO and through the European Defense Fund is to create, to incentivize cooperation amongst EU member states and those who agree to work with them, and typically Norway. So from that perspective, I think there would be a need for any future government. I, I get it that it, currently it is probably a bit too complicated to reach out to the EU and say, can we have a backdoor into some EU projects that we like after all, because, you know, you end up with a big uh, domestic debate, uh, at least within a conservative party. But beyond that, I think it would be useful because we have this sort of bonuses coming from being part of PESCO, from being part of an EU member state that will help foster cooperation. And I really wish the UK was making the effort to be reconnected to that particular part because that would make it possible. The last thing I would add on this, the fact that, as Nick was alluding to, after all, 98% of defense spending in Europe comes from the member states and the money is neither within NATO nor within the EU. But so what it means is that if you want joint cooperation on major projects, you need joint cooperation on major projects. And, and there, I think there could be a few. As one example, as we are speaking, Britain and France are delivering the Scalp Storm Shadow cruise missile to Ukraine. And it's proving both super efficient and a magnificent tool of a Franco-British cooperation. I'm not aware that there is a, a deliberate decision to do the successor to that missile together. 
maybe it would make sense, uh, in, especially in light of Ukraine, where the U.S. is not willing to deliver similar missiles to the Ukrainians. So we are quite happy to have a sovereign uh, missile that we can actually deliver. So that would make the case for working on the successor to this missile. There is a Franco-Italian, partially British project uh, associated with air defenses. If we could successfully make that into the standard for air defense in Europe, I think it would be somewhat smarter than simply going to buy off the shelf American or Israeli technology. I think those are the sort of very concrete steps that could be done. And those were focused on NVDA, which happens to be a Franco-British-Italian construct with a leg in Italy and Spain. But that could be applied, you know, let's dream for a second, with the next generation of fighter aircraft. Because currently we have two competing projects uh, with the Tempest uh, and the FCAS, so the future combat air system, to avoid too many acronyms. Uh, one which brings together France, uh, Germany and Spain, and one that brings together the UK, Italy and Japan, out of, uh, out of all uh, partners. Uh, so maybe there is room for those uh, projects to converge, maybe not on the platform, but on the combat environment, which is going to be the critical element of that. So there are lots of things that could be done on a very practical side. Camille, you said earlier on that um, you saw a lot of scope or potential for boosting the role of Germany within this picture. And, and, and listening to you, it is uh, conspicuously yeah, less less present than the other major capitals um, on, on this discussion. But one of the capitals that is keen to sort of to think about the, the potential of a reset with with UK. Can you talk a little bit about how you see Germany in this picture and whether there's an opportunity as, as part of this process of change of thinking about European security and the UK's role within that, which kind of binds Germany into I think there is an interesting point. The recently released German national security strategy fails to mention the UK at all, which is a signal that they are not seeking, a, at least formally, a bilateral relationship of that is exclusive. You know, and and in the, when you do the numbers game, uh, France is mentioned seven times, uh, the United States five times, and the EU about a dozen times. But Germany, the German document that doesn't mention the UK, which is interesting in it as a tool. Germany is an interesting animal in this conversation because at the moment they have lots of money to spend. They have this 100 billion euro fund that they want to spend in the next few years, but they seem to be going for what Nick just criticizes of the shelf acquisition of uh, mostly U.S., sometimes Israeli equipment, and not necessarily turning neither to their EU partners nor to the other European partners uh, for that. The argument being we buy things that are valuable immediately versus developing something together. So the Germans argue that it's the one doesn't go against the other. But in practice, if you do buy a weapon system for the next 20 years, you're not necessarily going to develop another one at the same time, even if you're super wealthy and have money to spend. No, I was just going to um, pick up, if I might, the um, the point that Camille was making earlier about, about the importance of concrete projects and collaborative projects as a way to move all this forward. I'm a great believer in, in that. You can have initiatives, you can have things agreed by the European Council, you can have new schemes, but what actually will help to pursue this holy grail of having a European defence industries coming together, consolidating, operating more on a continental scale, the pooling of efforts and resources, the pulling in of all the expertise and science and technological smarts that you can from across the continent and putting them in one place and putting them together. This, this will happen around projects. 
as it has in the past with the Meteor air-to-air missile project, which has half a dozen European nations involved in this, been very successful, and was material to the consolidation of the MBDA company, which uh, is transnational, is a leading missile house, is one of the few areas of European defence and technological defence equipment smarts, which is at a world level, a rival to Raytheon in the US. And it's projects that bring those things about. And projects typically work if you have a relatively small, hardcore of, of countries who come together to make them happen and maybe broaden them out once they're launched and the parameters are set and the main contractual conditions are agreed, broaden them out to invite the participation of other countries which may have something to bring to the party. But you need to start relatively small, which I think is one of the another area of, of doubting whether the German initiative, which again Camille was talking about, this uh, Sky Shield project to create a sort of a large air, def- air and missile defense system involving Israeli missiles and, uh, and American missiles and so forth. One of the reasons why I'd just be very surprised if it gets anywhere, because there are so far, I think, 19 cooks in the kitchen for that. And I think they've broadened it out in a way which will make it extraordinarily difficult to achieve a a result with it. So projects start small, which is why the LOI group has its attractions for me, and then broaden it out to bring in other Europeans. I think that's, uh, if you look back over the history of what's worked and what hasn't in uh, defence equipment collaboration over the last couple of decades, those are the key lessons. Can we maybe end by talking a bit about NATO? Because that is the one institution that most EU member states and the UK are all part of. There has been talk over the years about whether there should be a European pillar to NATO and whether Europeans should think about changing their collective role within NATO, particularly in the light of uh, election of Donald Trump and potential re-election of Donald Trump. How do you see, and and there was an attempt by this government to try and push Ben Wallace as a Secretary General of NATO. That hasn't succeeded. I suspect that if there's a Labour government after the election, getting Ben Wallace to be Secretary General of NATO might not be the number one priority. But um, do you think NATO could be a, a useful vehicle for building a different kind of relationship with Europeans? I think we're in an interesting moment. Uh, you know, Macron has been using quasi-German language to talk about NATO. It talks about the European pillar in NATO, which is very un-French, so, but, but it also creates opportunities. I guess when it comes to cooperation, we still have to figure out a couple of things. And there, your point about the next US election is really critical. How far do the Europeans want to be able to do things on their own and to prepare for the risk of a US that is less interested or disinterested or hostile to what's happening in, in Europe? And what does that mean in practice? So that line of effort would bring together the the European states, uh, whether they are EU member states or not. In some instances, the NATO umbrella might be useful. There are some projects that developed under a NATO umbrella, and why not? But ultimately, I think the for me, the key idea is this ability of the Europeans to talk to each other and to act uh, jointly. And they need the UK in that club, uh, to be be clear, because of its military might, which, which might not be as robust as uh, many in London would hope, but that is still uh, makes it a, a major player in Europe. And to be able to really think through what would be the consequences of a US in which would be much less interested 
in the European in European security or even uh, drifting away under a Trump administration. So that is a challenge of a magnitude that requires much closer relationship between all the Europeans, whether they are EU members, NATO members, or both. If I can just add a sort of footnote to that. I don't want to badmouth the US, whose leadership during this Ukraine crisis has been both remarkable, exemplary, and, and completely necessary. But when it comes to thinking specifically of industrial and technological development, you can't collaborate with the US. The US will not share its technology. You can buy your F-35 aircraft, as about a third of, over a third of EU member states are now planning to do, but you'll get remarkably little access to the underlying technology. And any attempt at collaboration runs the risk that you will find that you've incorporated in your kit some small US component which could fall foul of the ITAR regulations and mean that your efforts to export the kit somewhere in the rest of the world will be, and in many cases has been, um, simply forbidden by the Pentagon because you're incorporating US kit. I mean, the, the American approach to international arms collaboration is basically not to do it. They want to sell their kit. And why not? They've got wonderful kit and they've invested vastly in it over the years. But it is, you don't get any technological or any real industrial benefit other than maybe um, a bit of a final assembly work out of anything that involves collaborating with the US. I, I don't see myself, I mean, I mean, you'd be much closer to this than I am, but I'm pretty sceptical of any suggestion that NATO can help on that front. Operationally, of course, are indispensable. Okay. I think we're coming up to the end of our time on this, but there is one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf, Nick? Um, I, I've just finished reading, um, rereading, I suppose, uh, a set of collected columns by the Guardian columnist Marina Hyde, whom I basically worship. She's been, uh, this is the last six years of what she's had to say on pretty much a weekly basis about such matters as uh, Brexit and the Boris and Truss eras. She is the juvenile of our times with an underlying savage indignation about the uh, stupidities and and horrors of what has gone on, but with a, a light comic touch. She's hilarious. And this collection is called Marina Hyde. What just happened? Question mark, exclamation mark, which is uh, huge fun. Great. What about you, Kemi? To raise morale, I'm uh, in the process of going through a biography of General Curtis LeMay, who was the first commander of the Strategic Air Command and was uh, the, the man used by Stanley Kubrick uh, for the general in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, but he did really exist. And uh, the, this book by a guy named Kozak uh, sort of goes through the life of this extraordinary individual who was just as important as, as Oppenheimer which is now as a whole movie to celebrate in the U.S. nuclear program. And I think in those days where we discuss nuclear threats, uh, revisiting uh, the Curtis LeMay legacy is uh, the sort of healthy but dive into insanity. I've got a feeling that Malcolm Gladwell made a podcast about Curtis LeMay as well, which was pretty powerful. Okay, we'll put links up to all the publications that were mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please head to whatever platform you use to download this episode on and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, if you feel like giving us a positive review and a five-star rating, that would be much appreciated as it will bring other listeners to the podcast. But for now, from Nick Whitney, Camille Grand, Susie Dennison, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Maria Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.